0: When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray together. Jesus, we believe that you have come to save your people from their sins. Lord, you've come to save us from our sins. Lord, we believe that you have come to do what we could not do for ourselves. And Lord, right now, we need your spirit to teach us what we cannot teach ourselves, Lord. We, we need your spirit to fan into flame that, that gift of faith, Lord, to trust you. To follow you regardless of what may come, Lord, we ask that you would speak to your people with power, with wisdom, with might. Would you glorify yourself, exalt the name of Jesus in this place as we celebrate not only Christmas, but we celebrate the coming of the Lord and Savior Jesus into this world. God, would you teach us and guide us, be present with us in power, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Several months ago, I got to watch a documentary with my kids about all that goes into uh, breeding and training guide dogs for people who are blind. And I was fascinated by all that goes into this. These dogs are, 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 are bred and born, especially to become guide dogs and the things that they do from the moment these dogs are born. The way they care for these dogs, the way they handle these dogs uh, from the very beginning is crucial for them to learn, to trust, and to become what their handlers desire them to to, to become, and they undergo intense training. Someone once said that these guide dogs have the canine equivalent of a PhD, that they are these these brilliant dogs, well-trained dogs, and they go through this intense training, and not all of them. Uh, will eventually graduate to become guide dogs, but the dogs that do get placed with people have the ability to absolutely change the lives of their person. And the show told these these beautiful stories of people who regained their their independence, regained their, their freedom because they could now walk to the grocery store by themselves for the first time now that they had their guide dog. And the relationship between the people and their dog is an incredible example of the practical implications of faith. These people put their lives in the hands of a dog's ability to protect them from what they cannot see. It's an incredibly beautiful picture of faith. See, there's a significant difference between believing in something and trusting something. I've never experienced being led by a a guide dog, I believe they exist. I've seen a documentary. I've heard personal stories. I've seen it firsthand, watching someone be led down the street by a guide dog. I do believe that they exist, but I would have a very difficult time learning to trust a dog to guide me. I have a dog, and if I were to trust Zeke to guide me down the street, I would be dead in seconds, (laughs) beyond a shadow of a doubt. And it's difficult for people to learn how to trust these dogs. See, many people believe that faith is simply a belief in the existence of a higher power, like believing that guide dogs exist. Maybe they'll even go so far as to say that that faith is believing that Jesus is the Son of God. But faith is much more than a mere intellectual affirmation of these truths. See, faith is a commitment to trust God no matter what the circumstances. Faith is is the application of what we believe about God's goodness, about his character. Faith put into practice is, is, is trusting God no matter what we encounter. Because faith requires us to entrust our entire lives into the hands of a God that we believe is good. This is the difference between belief in the existence of something and faith, putting our trust in something. This is true faith. And so Mary and Joseph are examples of this kind of true faith. And what we're going to see today is that the faith of Mary and Joseph, through which God brought the Savior into the world, is the same faith required of each and every one of us to receive the Savior into our own lives. Matthew tells us that Mary is betrothed to Joseph. Where are my engaged couples at? Anyone engaged here? Yeah, there you are. There you guys are. Congratulations. God bless you. Um, betrothal is nothing like engagement. <laughs> betrothal is actually a legal agreement that two families enter into. And it's a contract that's signed in the presence of witnesses. The two are legally husband and wife. They're betrothed to one another. They are legally husband and wife, but they continue to live with their parents for a year until the wedding. This is why Joseph had to seek to divorce Mary. For those of you who are engaged, God forbid, if something were to happen, all you have to do is give the ring back. Betrothal, you actually need a legal separation to break the betrothal. It's very different than the concept of engagement in our day and age. And so they would live with their respective parents uh, for about a year um, until the wedding. And during that year, uh, they might have very little contact with one another and And certainly, any sexual contact would be regarded as adultery until the wedding day. And so, this is Mary and Joseph's situation. They are betrothed to one another, but before the wedding, it's discovered that Mary is pregnant. And so, from Joseph's perspective, it's as clear as day to him that Mary has obviously been unfaithful. He didn't have anything to do with it. And so he is seeking to divorce her quietly. And and so as as Joseph plans his getaway to, 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 to salvage his reputation and to salvage his future, God comes to him in a dream. And lets Joseph know that the child that Mary is carrying was from the Holy Spirit. This child is God with us. This child is the Emmanuel that God's people have been waiting for. And so Joseph agrees to take her as his wife and to adopt Jesus as his own son. And in doing this, this what what maybe it seems like a simple act. Okay, so he married her. Okay, he didn't divorce her. Uh, maybe it seems like a a, a remarkable, uh, loving, gracious, generous thing for Joseph to do. But what we see in this story is that Mary and Joseph demonstrate that faith requires letting go of control. Faith requires that we let go of control. Mary and Joseph, as far as we can tell, are a model couple, right? Things are going according to plan. They are doing everything the right way. When I proposed to my wife, Katie, I was still in school, I didn't have a job, and I was rapidly racking up student debt. That's what we call a triple threat, right? Uh, But seriously, if you are a young woman here, or you are the parent of a young woman, and some guy comes around who is still in school, doesn't have a job, and in debt, watch out. (laughs) That's that that's a triple threat. Um, Be careful. There's no reason why this ever should have worked out, but by the grace of God, my wife still loves me. In the first century Jewish culture, however, there was a certain level of stability that was required for a young man to get married. And so Joseph, during this time, is most likely working to prepare a life for himself and his new bride. Now, we don't We don't really know a whole lot about Mary and Joseph uh, from Scripture. There's not a lot that Scripture tells us. But what we do know is that Joseph is a just man. Our text says that he's he's a just man. That's why he wasn't going to seek to shame Mary or drag her name through the mud. He's a just man. And from Luke's telling of the birth of Jesus, he says that Mary is highly favored by God and that God is with her. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're God-fearing, just, loving people. And they're full of hope and anticipating all that God has in store. There's just one problem. God has a different plan for them. God has a different plan. I know couples that get married with a 10-year plan. It's not a bad thing. But it's their, it's their 10-year plan. And so they're going to get married, and, and always they're, they're going to work for a couple of years so that they can travel and just enjoy being married for, you know, five to eight years. And by that point, he's going to be at a place in his career where she won't have to work as much. And so they can have, you know, two kids, a boy and a girl, and they've got their names picked out and everything. Um, but then they, then they get pregnant on the honeymoon, and all that goes out the window. Right? God has a different plan. In life, there are things that just don't go our way. In life, there are things that do not go according to our plans. We can't control everything. And if we're honest, we look at our lives and, 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 and we think about who God is. If we're honest, we can't, we can't control anything. See, a pregnant virgin demonstrates that we never truly have control over our lives. God's not coming to Joseph in this situation to ask him for his permission. He's not even coming to Joseph to give him a warning. He lets Joseph experience this the natural way. Whether it was Mary or someone else came to him, said Mary's pregnant, he, didn't, he wasn't forewarned by God. Everything in his life comes into focus and he experiences the shock of that news. Maybe he's even heard Mary's preposterous claims that she was still a virgin. The life that Joseph is planning just completely blows up in his face. This is is way more severe, way, way worse than a honeymoon baby. God God doesn't always work according to our plans. I've I've talked quite a bit about a little bit about my story, um, specifically as it relates to to my father, and so some of this might sound might sound familiar. But it was back in 2006. I decided that um, I wasn't praying enough for my parents' salvation. Um, I was the only believer in my family, so I was going to commit my life. I was going to commit that year. I was going to I was going to pray for my parents' salvation. This was January of 2006, and in February of 2006, my dad was diagnosed with cancer, and I remember. Falling to my knees when I got that phone call and just repeating over and over and over and over again, God, this was not the plan. 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 And I was so confused. And thanks be to God, two weeks later, my parents both met Jesus on the exact same day, the exact same church gathering. And I went back to that same place when I fell to my knees and I said, I, God, I'm so sorry thank you for what you've done. See, we don't have any real control over our lives. Things often will not go according to plan. Joseph has no real control over his life. All of his plans, all of his good intentions shot down by God's greater vision for his life. We make the best decisions that we can. We plan the, the, the best that we can, most faithfully that we can, but we have to be open to the truth that sometimes God's plan for our lives is different than our plan for our own lives. And so faith means that we trust God regardless of what may come. We don't have control, but this doesn't mean that we're not responsible for the choices and the decisions that we make. Faith is still a decision to trust God and let go of the control that we think we have. Joseph's dilemma demonstrates that we need to let go of even the control that we think we have. So he responds to this news the only logical way possible. All right? he's gonna divorce Mary. That's, that's it. I'm not letting my name be dragged through the mud um, that's on her. So I'm going to part ways with her. She is going to have to deal with this on her own. And, but I'm going to do it. He's going to do it to try to protect her as much as he can. And so he's going to do it privately, but he's not going to let the pregnancy ruin his plans. See, he begins trying to mitigate the damage by controlling what he has left to control. And then God shows up and tells him not to be afraid that he can take Mary as his wife because God's doing something that Joseph can't possibly fathom. So in this situation where he's tempted to try to control what he feels he has left to control, God calls him to faith. And so the last two years, at least, have not gone as any of us have planned. The last two years have not gone as any of us have planned. Every single one of us have to face the fact that we're not in control. You're not in control. Even the things that you think you have control over, you don't have as much control as you think you do. But when we're tempted to fight, when we're tempted to control, when we're losing control and tempted to regain control, the Christmas story calls us to faith. And so Joseph is a man of faith. And so by faith, he lets go of control. But also, Joseph's faith demonstrates that faith requires letting go also of reputation. See, Mary and Joseph may not have been wealthy or had the admiration of the masses, but they are just faithful, God-fearing people. Have you ever met? those couples that are like so adorable and perfect for each other that it's just gross? <laughs> like, like, of course you would find each other. Of course you would find someone just as beautiful and just as kind and just as worthy of your love. It's just so frustrating. <laughs> Again, we don't know much about Mary and Joseph, but I just have to imagine. I like to imagine. Imagine that there were other young men in Joseph's community who heard from their parents, why can't you be more like that Joseph boy? <laughs> right? like, he's such a just young man. Like, Why can't you, why can't you be like him? He's a, he's a model example, right? But Mary and Joseph, in choosing to follow God in this path, will wear the scarlet letter for the rest of their lives. See, for what the community would assume was uh, an illicit interaction, they both, Mary and Joseph, could be killed. They could be killed for what would be uh, assumed to be a sexual indiscretion. Even after Jesus was grown and and Jesus begins his ministry and uh, he's performing miracles and and he's preaching the good news of the kingdom, he goes back to his hometown in Nazareth and the people of his hometown say, do we not know this man? Isn't this the son of Mary? Now, we might skip over that, but a young man would be known as the son of his father. And so this claim, this, that isn't this the son of Mary, is an intentional dig on Jesus. They are alleging his illegitimate origins that we don't, we don't know we don't know who this man's father is. Joseph is not his, his father. This is the son of Mary. And so even in Jesus's own ministry, he's still bearing the shame that the community has heaped upon his family for what had appeared to be an illegitimate pregnancy. And so trusting God required Mary and Joseph to receive scorn from their community. And for us, following Jesus may result in name calling people are going to look down on you. People are going to look down on you for your faith or for what you believe. We're a people who believe in the validity of the virgin birth. Christians believe that a crucified man is actually the savior of the world. We believe that this crucified man died and and rose from the grave three days later and ascended bodily into heaven. We believe that he sent the spirit of God to dwell within us and to empower us to live lives that glorify God. This is why scripture says that the gospel of the cross is foolishness for those who don't believe. To those who are perishing, but those who are being saved, scripture says it is the wisdom and the power of God. So if this is the way they treated Mary and Joseph, if this is the way that Christians have been treated throughout the history of the church, why should we think the culture will think any differently of us? Why should we think that we'll be accepted for our intellect or our cultural acceptability? We believe that a virgin conceived the Son of God and gave birth to the Savior of the world. This is is at the foundation, the heart of the Christian message. You all all know the names that Christians get called. In a a world and a culture where ignorance and intolerance are to be avoided at all costs, the culture says that you are both. That for believing these things, you are ignorant. For following Jesus in this, this high moral calling that he has put on our lives, that you are intolerant. And so many people shy away from who they truly are in Christ for fear of being labeled. Following Jesus may result in name calling. And so following Jesus is only possible when we trust that Jesus has given us a greater name. See, so you, you're not who people say you are. You are not who your family says you are. You're not who Satan says you are. You're not even who you say that you are. You are who God says you are. And if you've put your faith in Jesus, then you've been adopted into the family of God. You are a daughter. You are a son of God. And you are known by his name. You are who God says you are. You are not what your Uh, what your friends say about you. You are not what culture says about you. You are not what your sins say about you. You are not what the sins of others committed against you say about you. You are who God says that you are. He has given us a greater name and you're known by the name of Jesus and every royal family line on the planet will bow the knee to the name of Jesus and you belong to him. The reason that we are so often tempted to downplay our faith or, or to compromise our integrity or to distance ourselves from the difficult truths of Scripture is often because these truths and values are no longer culturally acceptable. And so rather than be ridiculed by society, we hide who we are in Christ. Maybe there's some of you here today who have experienced this temptation. Um, some of you who you you believe, but it's really hard. You're getting ready to spend Christmas with family, and 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 you're just gearing up for the discomfort that's going to come when somebody makes a joke or or ridicules you for what you believe or whatever else it may be, and you are going to be tempted to hide who you are in Christ. And you need to know that Jesus has given you a greater name, a truer name, a more powerful name than anything that anyone can ever call you, no matter who that person is. And this dance that we do around the truths of Jesus when put on the spot demonstrates that what we really long for what we really want is to be accepted. We want people to like us. We want people to approve of us. We want people to be our friend. And only when we trust that we already have the acceptance, only when we trust that we already have the approval that we need in Christ, will we be free, truly free from the opinions of others, truly free from the opinions you have of yourself. Only when you trust in who Jesus says you are, will you be free from allowing the taunts or the names, or, or the rejection of others. Only will you be free from that when you cling to who Jesus says that you are. And so faith requires us not only to let go of control, it requires us not only to let go of our reputation, but we put it all in God's hands. And so faith allows us to receive what we truly need. See, being liked is not what we truly need. Being loved, being approved, of, being accepted by others is not what we truly need. We don't need a friend. We need a savior. We need Jesus, and Jesus came into this world to save his people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus means. When the angel says, you shall call his name Jesus, Jesus means the Lord saves. And so he is to be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This is the meaning of Christmas. This is what we anticipate during Advent. This is what we are going to celebrate next week on Christmas Day. The Christmas story is the story of how salvation came into the world as a baby. This is the story of Christmas. And so Matthew couches this origin story of Jesus, this salvation coming to the world in a baby. He couches it in Israel's history. He reminds us of another time, when a child was the sign of salvation. And so Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter seven, which describes a time when the kings of Israel and the king of of Syria were threatening the Southern kingdom of Judah. And Ahaz is the king of the Southern kingdom of Judah and he's terrified. And so the prophet Isaiah comes to him and says, you're not going, these kings are not going to harm you. They're not going to overthrow you. You don't need to worry about them. He says, ask God for a sign so that you can be certain that this will not happen. And Ahaz in his false humility goes, I will not ask for for a sign. I will not put God to the test. And Isaiah says this really cool thing. He says, are you you so uh, uh, um, uh, done wearying man that you must weary my God also? He says, therefore, a sign is going to be given to you. Behold, the virgin or the young woman, as it can also be translated, will conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And before this child is old enough to know between good and evil, these kings are going to be cut off. And then in Isaiah 8, Isaiah's own wife gives birth to a son. And just a few short years later, these kings are no longer an issue. And Judah was safe, but a portion of the prophecy was unfulfilled because Isaiah's son was not Emmanuel. He was not God with us. And so the people continued to long for the day when this king would be born. They waited for the one who would deliver them once and for all from their enemies. And so Matthew says that Jesus is this promised child. And the way that Ahaz was tempted to look at the kings of a, of, of Israel and Syria and be tempted with fear, the the God says, look to this this child that will be born. This child is a sign to you that salvation will come. And in the darkness of the first century world, when people were terrified of Rome and they just wanted a military hero to come in and and wipe Rome off the mat, Matthew says, look to the child in the manger. The child in the manger is a sign to you of the salvation that is coming. And and the word for us today in, in this dark world In a difficult world is the same thing. It's look to the child in the manger. The child in the manger is the sign of our salvation. Not not a political figure, not not, any worldly power or might or legislation. Look to the child in the manger. The child in the manger is the sign to you, church, reality carpenteria of salvation. Jesus in the manger is the sign that salvation has come to this world. Matthew says that Jesus is the promised child who has come to deliver us from the greatest enemy the world has ever known. It's not Rome is not the problem for God's people. Our own political turmoil is not the problem. The enemy that we are powerless to save ourselves from, the enemy that wreaks havoc in the world is sin. And Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. See, the world celebrates, uh, the, 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 the Western world is celebrating Christmas for a variety of different reasons. There's really two Christmases. There's Christmas in the church and there's Christmas in the culture. Our culture teaches that Christmas celebrates the saving power of the human spirit. This is what the world out there is celebrating, that Christmas is a celebration of the saving power of the human spirit. So they strip away all the talk of scripture. They strip away the name of Jesus from the songs. They strip away the songs that declare his identity. And so the message that is left is that peace is possible if we all just bind together and love one another. If we just love one another, yes, the world is dark, but love is the light that will make the world a better place. This is what the world teaches. And so they abolish any claims of objective truth or objective morality. And if we could just get rid of religion and get rid of the religious figures and scriptures and beliefs, then we will finally be able to live happily ever after. But that could not be further from the biblical story. See, the world is a dark place. And like Ahaz many of us are terrified of what might be looming in the not too distant future. And what we want is a warrior. What we want is someone that can make life better. But God has sent us the child in the manger, Jesus Christ. Christmas is not about how humanity can save the world. Christmas is about how desperate humanity is for a savior. We're desperate for salvation. Christmas doesn't celebrate the human spirit. Scripture teaches that Christmas celebrates the salvation from the human condition. This is the Christmas that Scripture teaches, that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Tim Keller, in his book, Hidden Christmas, says, Christmas, therefore, is the most unsentimental, realistic way of looking at life. It does not say, cheer up. If we all pull together, we can make the world a better place. Christianity does not agree with the optimistic thinkers who say, we can fix things if we try hard enough. Nor does it agree with the pessimists who only see a dystopian future. The message of Christianity is indeed, things really are this bad. And we can't heal or save ourselves. Things really are this dark. Nevertheless, there is hope nevertheless, there's hope. So we began by talking about people who trust dogs to guide them when they can't see what's ahead. And it's difficult for many people first receiving their guide dog to to learn to trust that dog to lead them. It can take a long time to teach people how to literally put their hands in there, put their lives in the the hands of these dogs or the, the paws of these dogs. In The same way, it can be difficult for us to learn to trust God. It's okay if you're learning to trust God. So we can believe in God, but it's difficult to put our life into his hands. I remember one time, um, several years ago, I I was at a coffee shop just reading and and God just revealed this to me that, you know, you said, Adam, you, you believe me. You believe in me and you believe in my word and that's good. But do you trust me? And I remember praying and coming to this point where I was just, I literally sat there in silence for 30 minutes trying to, to say to God in my heart, I trust you. And not just I trust that you've saved me from my sins, but I trust you with my life. I trust you with my family. I trust you with my children. I trust you with my finances. I trust you with my marriage. I trust you with my future. And I sat there and I felt so ashamed that as a pastor, I couldn't say, God, I trust you with these things. And and, and he just kept me in my seat and said, I'm not gonna let you go until you trust me. And I got to this point, I kid you not, I said in my heart, even whispered it out loud in the middle of this coffee shop, I said, Jesus, I trust you. And I had this knee jerk reaction. I was just waiting for my phone to ring with tragedy on the other line. Because I've believed this lie. Church, there's this lie that that I've believed from early on in my faith. I've looked at my life and I've seen how God has used difficulty in my life to grow me. How God has used difficulty and tragedy in my life to bring about maturity and even glory for his name. But that that's true the lie that i believe is that god will only grow me through difficulty and tragedy and so if i truly trust him then it's just going to be hell breaking loose in my life and that day in that coffee shop god had to break me down and remind me that he is the one that heals broken hearts he's not the one that breaks our hearts and we can trust him but it's difficult and realistically there's many all of us in this room are still learning to trust God. You believe in him. Maybe you believe in him. And maybe the enemy is coming to you and saying, "You don't trust God. You might believe him, but you don't trust him. You're not saved. You're not a Christian. Don't listen to this idiot on the stage. He doesn't know you like I know you, and he's condemning you and he's preaching a false gospel to you that the good news does not apply to you. And he's telling you that you don't trust God. We all don't trust God we're growing in our trust. God is constantly moving those who believe, those who have trusted in the work of Jesus Christ. He is constantly moving us from mistrust to trust. So if you recognize that there's an area in your life where you're not trusting God, praise God. That's the Holy Spirit showing you that there's an area to let go of control, to let go of reputation and receive the deliverance that trusting God brings into our lives. It's nothing to be afraid of. It's nothing to be condemned by. Celebrate that the Holy Spirit is in your life, making you aware of this thing. If you weren't aware of it, that would be worse. Praise God for reminding us of those areas where we don't trust him. And when we put our lives into his hands, and when we learn to continue putting our lives into his hands, and when we're aware of those areas where we're not putting our lives into his hands, he reminds us that he draws us deeper and deeper into trust. And in Scripture, trust is never blind. It's never, it's never blindly just, okay, I'll throw my life into this scenario, or I'll trust this, this God for no apparent reason. No, trust is always rooted in what God has done for his people. It's because he's proven himself to be trustworthy that we trust him. In season and out of season, we trust him in every season of life. We don't know what the future holds. I I saw a meme this week of a person crying and it said, the moment you realize that next year is pronounced 2022, like also, right? It's It's just another, it's 2022. We have no idea what the future holds, but we know, we believe, we trust that God holds the future. He knows what's coming. He knows what's coming. And you know what? There's this, there's this phrase that we throw around as believers that, that God will not give you any more than you can handle. You've heard this, right? And I think it comes from 1 Corinthians 10, where the scriptures say that you, you will not be, you're, you're not experiencing temptation that is not common to man. Um, no temptation will overcome you. God will always provide a way of escape, right? So that you that you will not have to succumb to it. And so I think this phrase comes from this idea that God will not allow us to experience temptation beyond what we can bear. He will always provide a way of escape. But I think this idea of God not allowing us to experience difficulty or tragedy any more than we can bear, I think think we, we might understand it incorrectly. Because if every difficulty you experienced in life you could handle, Then you would get the glory. I I think God is constantly allowing us to experience things that we can't handle so that He can carry us through it and that He gets the glory. So if you find yourself in life not knowing how to deal, it's okay. I don't think you were meant to deal. I think Jesus was meant to deal with it for you, that Jesus was meant to carry you through it, that Jesus was meant to empower you in it. That's why he came, to save you through all of the gnarly, awful stuff that this world and the devil will throw at you. Jesus saves his people from their sins. He saves us from our enemy. He saves us from ourselves. He saves us through difficulty and darkness and hardship, if you could bear it on your own, then Jesus would not get the glory. Praise God, hallelujah, that he does when you don't die. We know that he's faithful and he doesn't ask anything of us that he hasn't already proven that he was willing to give us abundantly at the expense of his own life. We talk about control, giving up control. Regarding control, Jesus had all power and control in the universe, but he didn't use it to protect himself from pain or shame. He used it to receive our pain and shame into himself. He didn't use his rights to live a life of independence, but was born and was completely dependent upon a teenage mother. He didn't come in a palace or even in a house. He was born in a stable, in an animal's feeding trough. This is the king of kings and Lord of lords, born wrapped in swaddling cloths and and lying in a manger. With regard to reputation, Jesus was the eternal son of God, but he lived his entire life as the alleged illegitimate son of Mary. Completely abandoned reputation and lived in that shame. And with regard to faith, On the way to the cross, Jesus stops in a garden called Gethsemane. And he begs God, if there's any other way to accomplish salvation, let it be. Don't make me drink this cup. Don't make me go to the cross. If there's any way you can remove this from me, may it be. Yet not my will, but your will be done. And he completely entrusts himself to the will of God and is delivered into the hands of the religious leaders who condemned him to death and delivered him into the hands of the Romans to be crucified. And so we see this, that by his parents, Mary and Joseph's willingness to suffer reproach, that's what they did. They willingly stepped into this life that they knew would bring shame and reproach. In the same way uh, as their willingness to suffer reproach, Jesus comes into the world. And by his own willingness to receive suffering and reproach, he dies to save the world. And by our willingness to suffer shame and reproach, we can receive the savior of the world. And Jesus is raised from the dead and given the name that is above every name so that this child, which is a sign of salvation, this baby in the manger is the Christ On the cross, and is the king on the throne. We do not know what our king will allow into our lives in the future. We could never have prepared for the situation that we are in as a church, as a family. You could never have prepared for the situation that you're in as an individual. We do not know what he will require of us, but we do know what he was willing to give for us. Jesus has given us everything in giving us himself. And in faith, that Jesus is God with us, that he is Emmanuel. We can follow him by the power of the Holy Spirit no matter what it costs. This is the call of faith. This is what Jesus asks of us, not just to believe in his existence, but to entrust our entire lives into his good and capable hands. This is what we celebrate and this is how we live not just in the Christmas season, but every single day of every year. Let's pray together. Father, we give our lives to you. Lord, you have given your life to us, Jesus. And so in response, we believe that our life has been purchased, bought with a price. And so God, we willingly give our lives to you knowing that you are God, that you are good and that you can accomplish your purposes which are far greater than any purposes we can have for our own lives. Lord, we love you and we long to follow you. God, I pray for those in this room, Lord, for myself included, where we recognize areas in our life where we're we're keeping back trust, where we're keeping control for ourselves. God, I pray lovingly, graciously, gently, you would just adjust our hearts. Help us to open our hands and to place all that we are, our futures, our pasts, our families, Lord, everything that we are so tempted to cling to and control, that we would put it in your hands. Lord, we love you. We ask that you would stir up worship in our heart at this time. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.